online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, a wine bar revolutionary, Sonny Hodge, likes to be different. Whether it's a new way of wine learning or pouring glasses from the parts that other wine bars don't reach, we'll find out what drives him and what we should be tasting. Sonny Hodge is only in his mid-30s, but he's uh, clocked up what already looks like a lifetime of experience in hospitality. From Nando's to Gaucho, Margot to the Michelin-starred uh, Fordwich Arms in Kent. Uh, but his dream was to have his own place, doing things his own way. Uh, the result, Diogenes the Dog, opened in a converted pub in Elephant Castle in 2018, and it was uh, a rapid kind of sensation, really, and uh, soon spawned a second wine bar, Aspen and Merceau, uh, this time in uh, Battersea. The name's inspired by philosophy uh, rather than wine. Uh, he describes them as thinking spaces, so he can elaborate on that shortly. Uh, Sonny's actually a graduate of mechanical engineering, and uh, it's fair to say that he has his own way of talking about wine. Sonny, it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you to The Drinking Hour today. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, coming along. I know you're a, a busy guy. I mentioned some of the background there. There's actually quite a lot to cram in, but you've spent a long time in hospitality. I captured a few of the names there. What kind of roles were you performing there? Were you serving wine? My hospitality journey has been really holistic. I, I have served wine and I did serve wine on a regular basis, but I think I've ticked all of the boxes except for being a sommelier, which was a bit bizarre. So this is from being a KP in Subway sandwich shops to organizing trainings across the spectrum in Nando's from front of house to back of house kitchen and grilling setups to front of house and managerial roles in more high-end setups like uh, like Margot, as you mentioned. You mentioned Subway. I left that one out, but uh, I can't stand the smell of Subway. Uh, do you know when I go past a Subway, there mm-hmm. is a particular smell and I hate it. I really hate it. I don't know why. I can smell it a mile away and I think it's ingrained deep in my memory. And imagine... I, I know the smell well, and so did my clothes and the numerous <laughs> washes that were necessary afterwards. I bet. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> what did you learn about good hospitality? I think it's a very uh, personal thing. There's no formula. Uh, and I, I believe with people, and hospitality is a very much people-led business, it's all about the person who's, who's looking at you. Being flexible, mobile, having those interpersonal skills to really bring people in to whatever concept you may have is the key to good hospitality. Uh, no matter how smart you are, fast you are, hardworking you are, those are all really, really positive traits. But if you can't uh, form connections with your guests, then, then a lot of it will go to waste. It's interesting you say that because you're a very friendly, open guy. And yet you can also have really good hospitality from someone who's seemingly quite starchy and formal, yet does their job brilliantly and somehow still manages to affect that connection. It, it's, yeah. um, there, are, there are plenty of ways to kind of skin a cat, aren't there, when it comes to hospitality? A hundred percent. I think you're absolutely right. But it also depends on the environment that you're in. So I think like the uh, the non-speaking, starchy not particularly friendly style of hospitality is suited to very specific venues and places, mm. let's say. Uh, I think when we talk about hospitality general and what's good hospitality, you've got to think about the traits that can be applicable across all spectrums of hospitality, restaurants, bars, hotels, whatever it may be. 
And I personally have found it much easier to connect with more people by being open and friendly, uh, which sounds a bit like a no-brainer, than the starchy, precise style of hospitality, because uh, that's sort of pigeonholing yourself. And maybe 5% of people you meet will appreciate that, but I don't think the 95% of people would be blown away by that. So much of this is about feeling good, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, I can crack open sometimes on my own, I confess, you know, a bottle of wine that I really enjoyed with friends in a wonderful setting. And it's the same wine, but it's not the same experience. It doesn't taste the same. I don't finish it. You know, I, I don't enjoy it in the same way. It, it, it's weird, isn't it? it? It's not just about the liquid. It's about this great experience, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think any product we we consume is as much about the environment as the core product itself. This applies for anything outside of hospitality as well, be it the Ferrari that you pick up from the showroom. I mean, it'll have a very different feel if you sort of picked it up secondhand from, from the back end garage or wherever it may be behind your house than if you picked it up from a showroom type of thing. So that is absolutely the psychology behind purchasing and the feel around the product uh, is super important. Yeah, I remember hiring a convertible car on Highway 1 in California in the mid-1990s and thinking to myself, do you know what, when I get home, I'm going to buy a convertible car. And I bought an MX-3 and the roof stayed up most of the time because it was mostly raining and it was never quite the same. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. It's about that that in, environment. I read um, mm. an interview in Club Analogique uh, with you where I was surprised to see, given that you know an awful lot about wine, that mm -hmm. um, your weakness, as you put it, at one point was yeah, wine yeah. you didn't feel that you had the knowledge that you wanted to have a hundred percent I think it was the more specifically it was the idea that I understood it holistically I could sell it I could work with it generally guests would be very happy with with the amount of knowledge that I had but it was like historical facts and it was knowledge that was learnt because I learned it and then could just sort of regurgitate it. It wasn't the same as understanding a subject where any question you, you have thrown at you, you can, you can sort of parry back. This was just learning things to recite to people, which it never felt like it was my confident area. Um, if I were to be asked the question you know, about service or food, I could sort of pull back on my years of experience and think, okay, yes, this is this is what it is. But with wine, it was very much learning facts to present to people, which essentially meant that I learned a script, I understood what it meant, but I didn't really understand the core product. And I think many people to this day within wine suffer from the same issue. So what did you decide to do about that? I think so. Uh, having graduated in engineering, it's really formed the way that I think quite, uh, quite massively. Uh, I, I'm very analytic and I need to understand like the whys behind why things happen and how things happen. With wine learning from a personal perspective, a lot of the sources for wine learning were just teaching you what you should expect to taste from wines, what these wines, where they're from, what they should taste like. But there was none of the why. It was like, this is, you're having a Cabernet Sauvignon from Argentina. It should be full of uh, blackberries and tobacco if it's oaked. And you learn all this stuff and you're like, okay, I can learn that but I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't understand why, why that was the case. So a lot of my learning was outside of normal uh, wine uh, learnings. And uh, I have done WCTs, but it was more to fill in the gaps. So a lot of my wine learning was to understand the whys, I guess, to help me understand it from the base upwards and be able to think of wine in a different way to how it's traditionally taught a lot of going to lectures which there are numerous free lectures around London which I'm very fortunate to have uh, a lot of autodidactic learning and reading and tons of studying not just about wine but also about uh, what flavors are how we perceive them biological aspects Darwinian aspects of how fruit evolves you name it from the A to Z of understanding uh, plant growth and how that ends up in your how, how how that all translates to your glass of wine it's horses for courses though isn't it because you know uh, you've got an engineering background i yeah. i struggle to engineer a sandwich frankly you know <laughs> I, I, I don't have the kind of i don't have an engineer's brain and yeah. um, you're learning by rote 
can it work for some people and not others? Are you open to the idea that there are different ways of uh, of learning and, and yours isn't the only way? A hundred percent. I There are many, many different ways to learn and we all learn in, in different ways and forms. I'm going to throw a question back at you. Mm. Um, within food and drink, how where do you think wine sits? Do you think most people know more about wine than they do cocktails, beer and general food? Or do you think they know generally less? Uh, I would say almost certainly they know less. Yeah, and I, it was a loaded question. I would 100% agree. Um, the way that we are, have spoken about wine and do speak about wine now is not conducive to people really understanding and, and learning about it. And I think that makes me question the way that we have spoken and, and been teaching it previously so i essentially thought yes you are right people learn in different ways and forms but if you really want to get to the crux of education we all need to understand how things work and speak about things more tangibly than the smoke and mirrors that often surrounds wine be it stories of romance and vineyards and uh the uh the dog's names on the vineyards that have been there for a hundred plus years i mean i kind of uh, know where you're coming from absolutely and i plowed through the WSET. Uh, I got my diploma, but and there'll be many people listening to this uh, who are doing the diploma. I'm, I'm glad I did it, but it was not the way I talk about wine. And at times it rather yeah. sucked the joy out of wine for me, if mm-hmm. I'm absolutely honest. So I don't ever talk about medium plus or anything like that, although I understand why they try to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the alternative to that style of learning in your mind? I think the way to really help the masses understand wine is to get the science behind it right and speak about that on basic terms, on basic levels. Uh, And wine and all other drinks from coffee to beer and food, it's all linked. Like it's the same stuff. It's the same uh, chemical foundations. And I believe that if we focus on helping people learn about wine from a scientific perspective there's mass crossover into food and drink and then we'll start talking about food and drink in a very different way so to answer your question i think we should dwell less on the subjective and more on what is actually there because especially within food and drink uh, it's like art and looking at a picture we all perceive it in completely different ways and we all have preferences to completely different things which throws like a a complete variable mix of of what we all like and don't like and how we describe things and don't describe things. So I think the more we dwell in the tangible, the more we'd be informed to sort of move forwards beyond that and then add complexity to that root basis of the tangible scientific aspects in food and drink, and in this Mm. case, wine. It makes a lot of sense uh, in that, I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist very much, um, not a scientist, but I do think things like Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc make a lot of sense uh, when you start to understand um, some of the phenolic reasons uh, for, for the character of those wines. So, so just give us an example. You can use that one if you like or another of how you might explain a particular wine or style of wine using that kind of easy to approach scientific language i think really uh really simple stuff would be if i take one example would be an unoaked chardonnay compared to like an oaked chardonnay so traditionally if you go to a wine shop and you're being talked through different styles of chardonnay you'd be told one is fruit driven fresh high acidity and the other was like creamier and milkier and more lactic potentially oakier uh but you wouldn't be told sort of why and then i think the by helping someone understand even simple stuff like malolactic fermentation helping your guests understand what is malic acid like where does it come from what does it taste like we even go to the extent in normal conversations to help people understand and like learn idea uh learn things like what is malic acid how malic acid is rife in like tart green apples and how that flavor is also present in the fruits and how when you apply the magnifying glass of fermentation over those acids they come out in your final glass of wine and that is what's responsible for those tart green appley flavors in your wine 
even helping guests understand the etymology of the word, how like malum in Latin means like apple and how in the Latin language mal has big connotations with the ideas of bad, like malcontent and mal in Spanish and French mean bad from the uh, original sin of eating the apple in the Bible. So like we're really, really forming knowledge links, like helping guests understand and connect the dots between flavors and specific acids that exist in the fruit. And then if you want to add the other layer onto that, you can say during winemaking, people can induce malolactic fermentation where lactic acid bacteria will eat the malic acid, convert it to lactic acid. You'll ask your guests, what does lactic acid taste like? What does lactose remind you of? Milky, creamy. And then they've sort of found their way to help understand the complete differences in in two wines that are made of the same grape. And there you've actually described the wines without even talking about the winemakers, without talking about the soil, uh, without talking about a lot of subjective things that may exist but just focus on the clear flavors that do exist and why. And that's sort of forming the basis of wine learning. Love that. I mean, particularly the references to language, um, mm. to, to Latin, to the, uh, the, the, the French, to the, 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 the mal. Um, it, it's, um, it's brilliant. It, it's, it doesn't, makes a lot of sense. And I was about to ask you to explain lactic then, but you did. So uh, <laughs> you, you, you've, you've done that too. And um, can you apply this, by the way, to some of the really headache-inducing stuff when you're learning about wine, like, you know, intracellular fermentation and its impact on wine? You can do this for anything, can you? Uh, yeah, I mean, intracellular, intracellular fermentation is like, that's a scientific process. And you can apply those things to, or those concepts to helping guests understand where flavors come from and how things are fermented. Yes, you've got to think as well, if you're selling retail, a wine retail, how much time do you have to sit and chat? But if you've got a, a guest in front of you for the next three hours, you can, you've got three hours of someone tasting wines and you're just riffing with all this information. So when they step out of that three-hour journey with you, yes, they've had a lot of really tasty wine, but they've learnt a ton in the meantime. That is applicable not just to your space, but to everywhere you go, supermarkets, wine bars, restaurants, so on and so forth. Yeah, I take your point there'd be a a long queue building up at the uh, till if you're doing yeah. <laughs> intracellular fermentation, that's for sure. But I, but I think it <laughs> makes a lot of sense there. So if someone fancies a bit of this, you're not just doing, I mean, education's a terrible word, I always think, because it yeah. sort of sounds a bit hard and a bit boring mm-hmm. and it and certainly doesn't sound very Friday night. But actually, if someone mm-hmm. fancies a bit of this, you're doing this alongside kind of fun at your bars, aren't you? Yeah, this is, so service is sort of, is built around these experiences very often we're asked about like measurables of how we're doing based on finances and spend per head our measurables in service are about our interactions with guests so our internal measurables are how much time have we spent with our guests what are the journeys that we've taken them on anyone who books a table at the bar be it for a tasting or just a table at the bar our list at diogenes the dog for example is designed to be unknown, which means that anyone who comes, be it wine expert or not, to the bar will have to interact with our team. Um, They'll have to use their knowledge, which actually makes it easier to deliver knowledge because they don't have any sort of pre-assumptions or prejudice about the wine that's there. So it's it's very much by the glass journey, sort of riffing on a really fun list to learn things as you go. How do you find team members who are up for this good enough to do it it's a really good question and uh i've learned i say of late but i think especially uh post brexit uh that you don't you don't find them uh you have to make them so uh, so our training structures are really really in depth we're really protective of our service there are tests uh, both verbal and on paper and practical service tests. Um, sometimes we have people training with us for months before they're allowed to speak to guests or, or look after tables. So um, it's become more difficult post-Brexit um, for sure to have base knowledge within wine. 
But also what I found is by training someone from scratch with no pre-existing wine knowledge, you cut out any possibility of BS arriving, assumptions, guessing. When you have someone who joins you who only just learned those things with you last month, it's easier for them to share those learnings with guests and it's more natural and it feels less, let's call it preachy, if you know that you a month ago didn't know this. So it's actually like a sharing and newly learnt info, which is much more natural. Hospitality is historically um, underappreciated in this country, mm. in certainly compared with continental Europe, um, and it's poorly paid uh, historically, I think, in this country too, and has a high staff turnover. Um, all of those things are working against you mm. if you're basically looking for the very, very best staff uh, here. Yes, or building them. Uh, I am a firm believer that if you, the best is uh, is environment dependent as well as person dependent. And if you have someone who is moldable and keen to learn, then you can very, very quickly build the best. But if you have someone that is a wine expert, but potentially uh doesn't abide by your concept, maybe isn't as uh, good with people, isn't as open to learning more and being pushed and driven to develop themselves, then I would nine times out of 10 go for the multiple person who's the longer journey to, uh, to really develop them uh, to be the best. And I think nine times out of 10 now that that's exactly what we're doing within, within both bars. So you are right. It's harder than it's ever been before. The pressures are tighter and financially more difficult than it's ever been before but it's all part of it and I think you get to roll with the punches and by investing in people then you can uh, you have a lot more to play with and you get it gives you a little bit more flexibility even though it's a long-term um, investment and even though it can be a risk sometimes it's uh, it's definitely worth it and I think both of our brands have have proven that Brexit, you mentioned the B word, uh, you know, that has made recruitment uh, a lot more difficult, as you said. But presumably you're bringing a lot of unusual wine into the country that you're not going to get from, you know, Matthew Clark or whatever, an importer. Uh, you're going to be yeah. bringing stuff in you know, directly. Um, and that has become a lot more difficult post Brexit, hasn't it? Yes. Yes and no. I think it was always difficult. Um, there were always last minute hitches, uh, issues in logistics. We import um, so much directly, so we feel uh, the difficulties firsthand. Uh, but I also think it's always been difficult. Nothing's ever been really smooth. So these are just sort of different issues to deal with. Some things are as difficult as they were before, and some things weirdly uh, are easier. Uh, I think the hardest thing to deal with uh, and this sounds like a very cynical way of looking at things. The hardest thing to deal with is uh, there's an excuse now, whereas pre-Brexit, there was never an excuse. So I think there are very often issues that occur that are similar issues that occurred pre-Brexit or not responding to emails, delays on certain things, uh, negligence uh, in filling out boring tax forms, which occurred before, but now we've got, the, uh, we've got a tool that we can, we can blame. Uh, which is that B word that we spoke about. I think more people are easier to jump on. Ah, you know, Brexit's here, uh, when it may or may not have been the cause. Yeah, well, when it comes to excuses, there's the C word as well. I don't mean the C word, obviously. I mean no. COVID. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, sure. you know, I was told the other day that you couldn't have a newspaper in a British Airways lounge because of uh, COVID. And I'm thinking yeah. uh, you know, newspapers do not spread COVID, um, yeah. frankly. <laughs> uh, so so it's, it's crazy. But, it, it, you know, COVID is also used as an excuse in a similar way, isn't it? No, for sure. Uh, in an equal and maybe more universal global way, COVID, because uh, I guess Brexit has only affected us internally. Um, to such an extent, but when you're shipping wine from all over the world, uh, globally Brexit is, an also, is also an excuse. Um, but it's one of those things that I think uh, it's not worth dwelling on because it is what it is. No. And uh, sometimes finding, well, always finding solutions is, is the way forward. Well, let's not dwell on that, but actually, presumably the <laughs> pandemic did cause you um, a big headache. I mean, uh, yeah. the first bar, um, Dalgini's a dog, had been open, what, a year, two years at the most when COVID struck? 
a year and a couple of months. And I was very fortunate to have the successes that we did in that first year because we had already built a brand. We had already built loyal regulars. We had already built ourselves into the community. Uh, and from one day to the next, I remember it was a Friday service when Boris made that call. We closed the bar and opened the next day as a wine shop. Uh, it was an overnight flip. Like we, we never even considered closing. We, we flipped to the wine shop. Initially, I mean, we, we took whatever COVID measures we could, we could get from the news. Um, and then we just continued evolving uh, from, from there onwards. So, yeah, it was, it, it was a big uh, shock to the, to, to the team, to me. Uh, I always think in a, way it was a, in a way it was a positive thing. Diogenes the dog was, was my baby. Like I had created it from scratch, I'd grown it from scratch, and then COVID restrictions sort of sort of killed it. It was uh, it was like oh wow that's that's been ripped away from me. Especially when you're so protective of service and the team and your concept, when you haven't really like um, you haven't had to like or wanted to change it because you've been so protective of it, and then have government restrictions enforce that you you strip it down and change it was a biggie but also I think in retrospect it allowed me to develop the bar in different ways than I had done before and it also allowed me to realize that uh, I don't have to be so protective of it and uh, I have a good strong team that can do that for me which allows us all to grow. Yeah well grow you did because despite uh, those enormous challenges to your baby as you said <laughs> um you then still within the realms of that kind of pandemic period you then open a second bar uh in battersea slightly different demographic i'm guessing there yeah um, I, I should ask you about the names what's with the names uh for for these uh, two bars so they're they're both equally as tenuous <laughs> and a mouthful to explain. <laughs> so Diogenes the dog, we, we touched on, on the concepts uh, a little bit earlier. So Diogenes is all about helping people understand uh, how wine works from a scientific aspect, but also questioning, like, why do we talk about wine in the current way that we do? Why are we... Like, it's questioning the world of food and drink around us. Um, and the original person to uh, use his questioning nature um, within philosophy uh, was uh, Diogenes the dog, who was uh, the original cynic. He founded cynicism. He was a lesser Greek philosopher. So we decided to name uh, the bar after him as he was the first person to really coin cynicism and questioning the world around you. Right. Aspen and Merceau. Did you have a, a question on that or? No, no, no. I, I no. was just saying, <laughs> yeah. I was just taking it all in, to be honest, uh, Sonny. So <laughs> this is great. And and then, yeah, th that one I'd looked up before, I think. But Aspen and Merso was not what I was mm. expecting. Yeah, so Aspen and Merso, put simply, is a natural wine bar. There's a lot of uh, myth in natural wine, and there's a, little, a lot of sort of, let's call it hipstery, uh, sort of bouginess uh, in natural wine. So I wanted the, the name to carry real meaning behind it. Aspen uh, alludes to the tree, which uh, forms the second largest living uh, organism in the world. Um, the biggest Aspen colony uh, is in Colorado. So Aspen trees, when we look at them as people, they're all separate trees and there's you know millions of them but actually they're all uh they're all one tree they're all connected under roots sort of like mycelium they they appear uh as separate above grounds but underneath the ground they're all one unit uh so the aspen tree was a really good uh sizable symbol of the connectivity of nature but also how uh how unbeknownst that is to much of mankind when we look at it it lo all looks disconnected and separate but it is actually all connected, as is nature as a whole. Um, so that was beautiful to sort of signify uh, the idea of natural wine. And Merceau, most people think we're talking about uh, Burgundy here, where yeah. I actually wanted to touch on Merceau as a character in uh, L'Etranger, uh, Albert Camus' existential French novel, where Merceau was this sort of unfeeling, disconnected, man in the book he was disconnected from his fellow man he was disconnected from society and nature and i wanted this juxtaposition between nature 
and uh, the sort of separation of mankind, which is where we are, where we all are now. Natural wine. Let's talk about that mm. because you mentioned BS there, and there are mm. certainly a, a reasonable number of people who um, who suspect there's a sort of uh, a dose of bullshit in natural wine as well. Yeah. Uh, certainly in the trade. So, um, I mean, first of all, um, to you, what is natural wine? Um, so. I will give you the spiel that I uh, instruct my team to, to give across both sites. So there are three components to, to natural wine. And I think it's important that we start off with the most important fact about natural wine, which is there is no legal definition of natural wine. So what, what we talk of natural wine is not legally uh, stated which is why there's a lot of BS in natural wine because there's no stipulations behind it. And now I'm not pro or con there being no legality behind uh, the word natural wine or the term natural wine. But I think it's important that everyone knows that natural wine is not one thing because it's not legally grounded. The second and third components of what natural wine are are more about, I guess, the ethos behind natural wine. And one of them is in the, uh, is in the growing of the fruit. So... I would say that it's had less intervention. So we could talk about whether it's organically farmed, biodynamically farmed, if that's certified or non-certified, that's sort of, you know, totally up to you, what you believe uh, is, is adequate. So the farming is one aspect um, and organics and biodynamics uh, do play a part in less intervention within farming. And the other part is in manufacture. Now, uh, organics uh, don't, play a massive part in manufacturing, especially within the EU. But I would say when it comes to making the wine, which is the final component after you've harvested, an ethos of not adding or taking anything would fall in with the production of natural wine. And adding stuff could mean things like adding sulfites or uh, acidifying or taking things away could mean like filtering and fining and all sorts of things. On sulfites... Um, mm. Do you have uh, a, a reasonable number of, um, well, zero sulfur? I mean, you, sulfur is naturally occurring. So uh, as I yeah. understand it, you can't have zero sulfur, but you can have no added sulfur. You have a, a fair number of those, do you? We do. We have a few, a handful, I would say. So in, uh, on the list that Aspen and Merceau, we have a handful of wines that have zero sulfur added. Most of the wines have had a teeny bit of sulfur uh, on bottling. But I would say, hands down, we're talking uh, 90% less sulfur across the board than what you'd find in commercial wines. And just explain to those who are listening, because there are some people who actively seek out wines uh, with mm. as little sulfur as possible. There are others who don't know anything about what it means and what yep. it does. So just, just explain why it's there and what it does and why some like to avoid it. Yeah, so uh, I mean, sulfur is used in so much uh, commercial food production. It's used as a preservative. It, is, it preserves in two ways. It acts as an antibacterial and an antioxidant. So when it is added to your kid's pack of sliced apples in the little bag, which is why that little bag is puffy, it ensures that your sliced apples don't go brown from oxidization and that bacteria doesn't slowly eat it away inside that bag. So it's really beautiful and fresh and, and good to eat. And it's also used for the same reasons broadly throughout wine production from harvest in some places to fermentation to bottling or at every single stage in the manufacturing process uh, in wine now i guess there's a lot of around uh, sulfur and whether it's as negative a thing uh, as we believe it to be my thinking around sulfur is it is uh, bad for you if you suffer from a sulfur allergy uh, if you are allergic to sulfur, then of course it's not going to do you any good. But suffer, uh, sulfur sufferers even. Oh, that's a bit of a tongue twister. It's a mouthful, sulfur sufferers. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sulfur sufferers or people who have uh, sulfur allergies are a minority. We're talking sort of five to seven percent of the population, and of course that's uh, differing levels and spectrums of allergies. And I also think that if you have uh, an intolerance or an allergy to sulfur, then you would feel it in plenty of other food uh, as well as wine. So even like uh, sulfur is used extensively in, in dried fruit 
Um, so like raisins and dried mangoes and things, and they're chocked full of sulfur, more so than, than some bottles of wine. So I think if you're getting a headache or a rash or something from your bottle of wine, then I would uh, question why you wouldn't get it from the dried fruit uh, amongst, amongst other foods that is full of sulfur. But I, guess, I, I think that that's the, the broad overview. I could go more technically into it, but I don't know how much you'd want me to rabbit on about sulfur and histamines and things no that i mean that's good for now i mean <laughs> um, tell us what you look for in a, a a good wine that you're prepared to put on your list i think the the first thing is does the wine fit what we do be it the list that diogenes the dog or asaman Merso. like before i've even tasted the wine or seen the bottle does it, does it fit in with what we do? So I would want to know if it's Erasmus and Merceau, is it farmed organically or biodynamically? If not, how is, it, how is it made? Like, what are the measures that allow intervention in that wine? And also, I've got to understand what they are to be able to communicate that to my team, who will then communicate that to my guests. And that, in, a, in essence, is all storytelling. So the wine will need to come with a story which represents your brand effectively, be it the Malbec from Texas, which is really easy to fit in with our concept at Diogenes, or the ideas of, let's say, rebellious winemakers in, in Atlantida who don't believe in organics and don't believe in biodynamics, but are very much against no-till and no use of copper in farming. So like, does it have some essence of information that can be relayed to your guests to help build what it is your wider communication is? Which narrows down a lot of wine a lot of wines it really does yeah it does and that's before that's just on paper so that's before it's even seen or tasted or smelt and then for me i really want to have both concepts competitive i need to make sure that they're price competitive so the costing is equally as important and i would want to know how much that would cost me to understand how much i can sell it for before tasting or anything then i would taste i would see if that weighs well uh, in terms of the style of wine, the complexity against the story and the price. And then you realize that uh, really for the list, I'm looking for the 0.01% of wines that are, that are found and sold, which is uh, a difficult feat, but we've managed to achieve it for a while now. Does this make your wines more expensive? Uh, does the selection process, do you mean, make my wines more expensive? Yeah, well, you've listed all those things you're looking for. Um, yeah. You've kind of admitted that that narrows it down to a very small percentage of available wines. Um, mm. Then at the same time, you've got you know, um, cash-strapped customers in Battersea and Elephant and Castle who presumably um, have got all their bills going through the roof and like the rest of us. Yeah. You know, does it present a bit of a challenge in terms of bringing together a list that people can actually afford? It's a, it's a challenge, but I think it's always been a challenge. Uh, I think within my hierarchy of selection that I sort of outlaid there, my second point under, after understanding whether it fits the concept was, is it, is it cost effective? Um, and I won't, like, it'll be a waste of everyone's time for me to be tasting wine that is out of the consistent budget of everyday drinkers. So my second thing to, like, in terms of selecting wine is very, very price conscious. The one thing that allows us to stay hyper competitive from a price point is our ability to import. And our concepts are based on importation. We can import pallets at a time directly from vineyards. We're cutting out on so many middlemen. We're making our own house wines, uh, bringing them in, in in 20 liter boxes. So there are like so many measures and ways that we've implemented into the structure of how we bring wine in, be it an import or whether it's making it ourselves, that have allowed us, yes, within such niche concepts on small volumes, which you would expect to be very expensive, but they've allowed us to keep costs really, really low. And I will be honest with you, I never factor my time into costs, which maybe if it meant I was, you know, if one day I were to sell the business, I think it'll be unsellable because the business might not make sense if you were to pay someone to do what I did consistently across the board. Well, don't say that because you might want to sell it one day and then they might listen I, to this. I, I, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the, complex, the, 
concepts are too complex to be able to sell. But you're right, I shouldn't say it out loud. (laughs) Well, you just did. Never mind. Um, (laughs) I want to touch on something scientific again, briefly, because you mentioned copper there. And I'm always very interested in this, because you can um, have copper if you're organic, and you are, I think, quite reliant on it. Um, uh, but but there's a school of thought, I think, that there is too much copper being used. And I just wonder mm-hmm. if in a decade's time, we're going to be sitting here talking about, you know, wine without copper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we already are. Like, we, it's, uh, it's very, uh, it, it's not controversial to think that copper is bad for the land. The only reason we're not talking more about copper is because it's not spoken more to the public about those who use copper use it um because it helps um as a anti uh anti fungal uh ingredient uh predominantly so it's used in places where you need to keep fungus and uh and levels uh of all sorts of pests down but it's in their interest to use it because it keeps their yields high and it enables us to buy wine in the volume that we do at decent price points, even for organics. But it destroys your land and it destroys everything under the land, all forms of mycelium that is built up that will help replenish your soils, that will help get nutrients back into the vines are just destroyed, which in turn means that we are more reliant on use of commercial fertilizers, which is exactly the state that the world is in. So. Will people be talking about copper in the future? I should hope so, because it's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening now, and it's been happening for quite some time. Yeah, and that's my point, really. You mentioned we're talking about it, but uh, I, I, I don't really sort of see wines that market themselves on copper-free. I might just yeah. be missing those wines. I mean, if I come to your I bar and say, I want a wine without copper, do you have one? We do, but is it on the label? No. How do we know that? because we either met the winemaker or we understand exactly what the winemaker's intentions are. So, like, you're, you're absolutely right. There's no signage on copper use. Yeah, I think that's something that might uh, well uh, change in the future. But we could, ha- again, have a big uh, chat just about that, which we don't want to do, because I also want to uh, talk to you about um, the wine bar as a concept, because I'm a bit older than you, but I, I remember, you know, really rather loving wine bars, old school in the, you know, I suppose, very late 80s, 90s, uh, lots of candles everywhere. Uh, normally mm. a, a decent selection of wine when it wasn't so easily available elsewhere. And then wine bars seemed to go out of fashion completely, didn't they? Yeah, I would like to say that I remember, but I don't think I was off drinking age uh, <laughs> in, those era, in that time. Wine bars have been around for a while. Um, from what I know of wine bars pre the current uh the current era they were very very trendy i think it was hard to get good wine in uh back then pubs very quickly adopted a similar structure so pubs were then sold uh, pubs were then selling more wine and then uh, i'm assuming that wine bars were at a competitive disadvantage because maybe they weren't specialized enough to for people to come to them rather than pubs and then pubs are now selling lots of beer with a really good selection of wine sometimes which made it a lot lot harder but i think i mean that there is a resurgence of wine bars especially in london nowadays yeah and it's great it's a bit i liken it to the fact that we used to buy wine at thresher or uh, Victoria wine. And then, frankly, th- th- they disappeared. We went to the supermarket, got bored of what the supermarket had. And now we have wonderful independent wine shops, which are yeah. much, much better than Vicky Wine ever was. And I think the same is true uh, with wine bars. We used to have things that were a little bit ordinary, and now we have bars like yours. So I, I think it's a you. uh, I think it's a natural kind of process of civilization, really, which is, which is, um, which is great. But, you know, do, do you kind of delve into beer and, and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, so we uh, we get beer that again sort of fits concept. So the beer that we uh, we bring in for Aspen and is shared across Diogenes is from Stroud uh, Brewery, who are incredible. They're cross fermenting, so using uh, indigenous yeast in fermentation. So no commercial yeast uh, used, uh, organically certified, B Corp certified, vegan. They tick like a, a ton of boxes. So. Our brand extends to everything else that is sold within it. I would like to know more about beer than I than I do currently. I find it fascinating and interesting. But currently, everything that's sold within fits what we do. 
Yeah, I'd love to know more about beer as well, but it's uh, there's so much about wine that I'm yet to learn that I just don't <laughs> sort of seem to have um, space. What are the current trends you're seeing in wine? Uh, well, I think I'm at the the tip of a lot of those current trends. Uh, so I see uh, a polarized view of those current trends because they're sort of happening within our spaces every single day. But a, a mass interest in orange wine is, is the most obvious one. People are coming in and asking for it, having never had it before, having heard from it from other people. And that's sort of like the epitome of indicators, uh, of trend indicators is, are people asking for something that they've never had before? Um, so tons of orange wine drinkers, a good amount of people who are being into pet nats and have heard of pet nats before, which I guess is just, you know, a method of making sparkling wine, but it's cool that people are speaking about wine with such technicality. A trend, that I would like to see developing more than it is now is the use of hybrids um, in wine production. So hybrids are making good wines now. And I, uh, I think beforehand they had really shoddy reputation and for use in new winemaking regions like the UK and Eastern Europe, uh, they will allow us to grow good grapes using less chemicals, less intervention across the board. It'll be easier for us to do organics and biodynamics with use of hybrids. It'll be cheaper and more cost effective and we can produce good wine. And I think the only reason we we don't use hybrids now is because of the marketing forces at play with uh, names of grapes that are weird and foreign to us. Yeah, they do have some batshit names, but I mean, just... (laughs) I'm aware that this is the first bit of terminology we've used that you haven't then qualified by explaining. So just give us your over-the-counter um, quick explanation of hybrid uh, for us. Uh, so the species of grape that we use predominantly for wine production is called Vitis vinifera. So like all of your Merlots, your Malbecs, your Chardonnays, anything you've seen in the supermarket is most probably Vitis vinifera. There are grapes that exist that are mixed uh, Vitis vinifera and another species, be it you know vines from America or China or whatever it may be. So a hybrid is essentially a grape where one of its parents is Vitis vinifera, sort of Eurasian grape making varietal, and the other parent is another species from somewhere else. And that is essentially a hybrid. Yep, very good. This is great. So much better than a, t- a textbook, frankly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Your answers on these, we, I could talk all day uh, with um, a brush up on some terminology, frankly, that I'm rusty on. But um, uh, <laughs> there's another kind of important kind of debate going on at the moment um, in the trade about um, uh, this this fear that younger consumers are not connecting with wine. Um, I don't know mm. to what extent um, that is a, a, a grounded fear, but is that a concern that you share? I did, and I do passively, let's say. The idea of Diogenes and Aspen was to help the wider world understand more about wine technically, but it stemmed from that fear that you are speaking about. Our, like my generation, generations to come, are not drinking wine in the same way that our parents did or our grandparents did. The generation of wine drinkers that are spending ridiculous amounts of money on fancy bottles of wine, speaking about wine in the way that has been done. That generation, and it sounds very bleak and morbid, but they won't be around for, for some time. There are private members wine clubs, uh, not to name names, that are opening up and openly advertising to younger demographics because their older demographic pool is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So within the higher echelons of wine, hundred percent like we need to find a way to get young people back in because otherwise in a you know 10 years 20 years time there'll be no one left and i think from the other end of the spectrum which is sort of more broad holistic wine understanding we have to speak about it in a different way kids nowadays myself our generation we want to know why stuff happens we won't just be sort of told and be marketed that something is good because because we're told it's good we want to understand why it is which is a big part of of why uh, Diogenes and Aspen exist. It's sort of to uh, spread the word from a scientific basis of how wine works. And then people can go away, speak to their friends, 
and that'll form a culture of enjoying wine and understanding wine which didn't exist before and when you look at the bars in full flight on a friday or a saturday night it is a, a younger demographic than you would see in most wine bars we can't all go to your wine bars though so what should wine <laughs> be doing to better connect with younger consumers it's a really good question and i'm very adverse to general marketing and you know uh the easiest answer would be like uh, cooler labels on the bottles but i think uh i would i would hope that the way that the wine is presented to people across the spectrum would be more accessible and knowledgeable um as wine sellers uh be it in restaurants uh bars or shops i think it's our duty to be an expert within what we do but also not use that to distance ourselves we should use that expertise and that knowledge to really bring people in uh, of any age. And within wine for a while, we've been uh, sort of distancing ourselves from our guests by using that knowledge. And the, um, the stereotype of the wine waiter or the sommelier who's really sort of snobbish and up themselves does exist and stereotypes all come from something. Yeah. And actually, it's refreshing to hear you talk about science and uh, taking w- what is a slightly counterintuitive approach to engaging uh, younger consumers rather than that sort of uh, rather um, sort of trite stuff about, you know, well, Dua Lipa likes this wine or um, yeah. <laughs> if you want to be like Justin Bieber, you need to drink this or, or whatever. It's, um, it, it's, it's definitely refreshing. Um, we should talk Thank to you. diversity too, because uh, the wine world is still um, a, a fairly white male arguably mm. stale place and I, I say this as a, a white male hopefully not stale um, albeit <laughs> you know, gay but I mean that's about the, that that's that, that counts as a not very much these days to be honest but otherwise you know, I'm a white male but you, you you represent something a little bit different so so just what do you think about sort of diversity in wine so I agree with you Wine has always been uh, dominated uh, by, I guess, white males. Uh, but I think, uh, and I might have controversial views on this, but I, I'm a firm believer that you, sh- you should have the best people for the job to do that job. I'm not uh, a believer in sort of affirmative action style quotas. Uh, I am not uh, a uh, Caucasian uh, individual within the wine industry, but equally, I haven't found any barriers to me developing within the wine industry. And I know that it's very different now from how it would have been maybe 10, 20 years ago. But these changes, they happen naturally. Do I personally outwardly go and find as many non white people as possible to join the bars? Absolutely not. Are my bars incredibly diverse? by just finding the best person for the job, 100%. Our bars are the most diverse bars that I've seen across the industry, but I have not actively uh, done that. And I think by looking for people without ex- wine expertise, but with the want to develop in wine, uh, that is sort of how I've achieved that. But it's never been something that I've been sort of fully pushing for or even softly pushing for. It'll. Ha- I think these changes will happen organically as as long as you take the barriers away, the people who are interested will come and fill them. And then before you know it, things would have changed. I know it's it's maybe not the most on-trend thing to say, but it's uh, I'm a firm believer that you, you build industries and you build expertise uh, and you build passion and love about products by doing it naturally and not, not sort of ticking boxes and, and pushing people into roles that maybe uh, are not in those roles for the right reason. Interesting. I know you're going to hate my last question um, because uh, we tend to ask uh, guests for their desert island wine. And um, you've already sort of warned me that you you don't really want to answer this. And I'm going to ask you anyway. And you can give me whatever answer you. Um, so you're on a desert island. You can have uh, yeah. you know one wine. That That's the question. Uh, you can answer it any which way you like. So I, I should explain why my reluctance in answering this question arose. It was more because uh, uh, I guess my my task in the wine world is to 
help people understand how it all works. But equally, my personal preferences are irrelevant to, to all of that. If I was on a desert island, I would hope that I would hope that I would need more more apt things. Like uh, I would probably want a bottle opener to you know help me hunt squirrels or, or whatever's native to that island as opposed to the bottle of wine. So I'm going to craftily skip that and ask for a bottle opener. Okay, I don't really want to know how you hunt squirrels with a bottle opener. <laughs> uh, to be honest, I think that's a little bit macabre for uh, the drinking hour, but I'll take your, I'll take your answer and uh, look forward to you know, a really fabulous glass of wine and a bit of braised squirrel um, at, uh, at one, of your, um, one of your bars. Braised desert um, island squirrel. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's uh, fascinating uh, chatting to you, albeit worrying for squirrels uh, listening. And um, you know, it's it's I, we, we could talk for hours, and it's it's I, I I would highly recommend to 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 anyone who's sort of up for knowing a bit more about wine, your way of talking about it, and what you're doing at the two bars. It's um, I, I think you've sold it very well, anyway. Although thank you, uh, your, your, that was not your intention to come on and sell, but I just think uh, just the way you talk about it does that. But um, Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to to chat to you. Thanks for joining us here on The Drinking Hour. It was real. It was really fun. Thank you, David. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, it's time to round off with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame in 2022. Sonny was uh, a judge and will be again uh, this season at the IWSC, uh, the 2023 entries are yet to be assessed, but that happens in the next couple of weeks. Uh, back to 22, Banfi, 2017, Brunello di Montalcino, a great producer, one of the great names of Tuscany. This was a silver medal winner. Uh, the judging panel included uh, Sonny uh, and also featured Emma Dawson, MW, uh, Alistair Cooper, MW, and Igor Sotrick. Here is what they said. Rich, expressive and elegant with coconut notes, ripe red berry and blackcurrant fruit that lingers on the palate. Overall, it is fresh with a well-integrated acidity, they said, uh, of that uh, Banffy 2017. Next, uh, another uh, strong silver medal winner, 93 points for a great Burgundy name. Eduard Delaunay, uh, 2019, Volnay, Santino uh, Premier Crew, uh, Burgundy, obviously. Uh, the judging panel's tasting note, opulent dark cherry fruit unravels on the nose, leading to a dense dark cherry cassis palate with fresh acidity, a touch of black truffle and well-structured, attractive length. Well, let's uh, stay in Burgundy, uh, though a very different part of it. Uh, Chablis, um, I um, adore a really good Chablis. Uh, who doesn't? La Chablisienne. Chablis Premier Crew 2019, a strong silver, 92 points. One of a host of silver medals um, for uh, the producer. Uh, some of these uh, vineyard uh, or uh, plot-specific wines. Uh, the judges said, ripe green garden fruits swirled in cream with sweet spice make this a beautifully textured wine with stunning complexity and weighty length. Uh, next, here's um, a pick pool, Benjamin Darno, 2021, uh, Pickpool de Pinay. Um, I was on the judging panel for this as it happens, and we said a clean, open palate with bright grapefruit and a touch of pineapple on the palate, completed by a saline finish, energetic and zippy with a savoury twist. And that was uh, a silver medal winner. And here's another really strong silver, almost a gold, 94 points, just one shy of a gold medal. This is a Provence Rosé, a Domaine de Cala, 2021. I was uh, also on the panel for this one, as it happens, alongside uh, Philip Reinstaller, uh, Sophia Longhi and Victoria Sharples, under the supervision of Dessou Viana Jr. MW, who we've spoken to before on The Drinking Hour. And we said this, sophisticated and subtle. This wine unfolds immaculately with poised red currant, exquisite white flowers and the warmth of white pepper. The wine lingers on the palate, letting you enjoy its balanced definition. And that is it for uh, another episode of The Drinking Hour. You can find uh, my column at uh, Club Analogique, uh, sponsors 
of this program and do visit those uh, wine bars we mentioned earlier on, uh, Diogenes the Dog and Aspen and Merso, which are brilliant ventures from my guest today, uh, Sonny Hodge. My thanks to him and to you for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.